Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Please delete as appropriate. Hello there, I'm Andy Anatko. Florence Ion is on week number two of her month-long leave. And I should point out rumors that she's using this time to begin her Pokemon journey, you know, traveling far and wide, catching increasingly rare Pokemon, engaging Pokemon gym leaders in battle, and generally, you know, working towards the goal of becoming the greatest Pokemon trainer in all the land. Let's put this to rest. All those rumors are false. However, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be spreading those rumors anyway, because, you know, isn't, isn't that kind of exactly what you would imagine Florence Ion doing? It's part of why we love her. Well, doing these shows solo while she's on break has been a lot of fun. Well, for certain definitions of the word fun, I want to be clear. But it's a, it's a good topic for a conversation. I, I, I'm in the mind to talk about the problems of getting good at doing something. You know, my job on this podcast, ever since the first episode with Russell Ivanovic and Yazimin Yevgen, is, has been sort of the editor-in-chief. You know, I, I track stories every day and every week, and then I decide on the show rundown every week, and I write up uh, cheat, cheat, cheat sheets for all the stories that we talk about so we can focus on the conversation instead of having to look things up. So you can imagine that after 400 of these, I've got that process pretty much on lock. But I haven't done a solo podcast regularly since, like, my first podcast, which, uh, I believe it or not, I did when... <laughs> podcasting first became an actual thing. So I do not have that technique of recording podcasts on my own on lock at all. It is unlocked. It is in the middle of the sidewalk. It is, it is a piece of string that's not even tied around it. It's that's, yeah. Well, anyway, so that's why I say it's been fun to do these show solo shows every now and then I'm still writing an episode of material every, every week, but I can't allow my creative flow to run through the old ruts and gullies that have been carved through my brain since like episode 100, because I'm doing this differently. Incidentally, have you ever heard that analogy before about how the brain works? Uh, it's, it's usually used to describe neuroplasticity. Uh, a neuroscientist compared repetition and routine to flowing water over rocks and stuff that over time, the brain wires itself to make that task easier with repetition. Now, this does, of course, uh, invite people to say that my brain is like soft rock at best or wet sand at worst, to which I have to respond, fair, fair. Well, anyway, so I'm taking this opportunity, now that I'm doing a solo show every week, to experiment with new routines for everything, in fact, not just the stuff for doing solo shows, but the whole way that I write an episode of material. Like I always have written the doc in in Google Docs, and that's obvious so that I can easily share it with Flow. Now, it's just me this month, so I can use anything. So I've been trying a different writing and organizational tool. I've had this Mac and Apple and iPhone and iPad app called Ulysses for years. It's one of those apps that I didn't use very much. It came out many years ago. Um, I liked it, but it didn't just, I just didn't find a place for it. But now that I'm finally committing to determining what Ulysses can do, I'm finding out that it can do a hell of a lot more than I thought. It's much easier for me to track and build notes on stories in Ulysses than it was in Google Docs. And I might have to give uh, Notion, is that the name of the word? I should look it up. Uh, there, there's a, a web-based organizational tool. Uh, and It's combination note-taker, publisher, scheduler, tracker, whatever. I, I don't know. I, uh, I, tried it, I tried it at first, just like Ulysses. I liked it. It seemed really, really complicated. A lot of people who were using it we're mostly using it to do 
evangelical videos about how good it was, <laughs> as opposed to wow, I'm so, I'm so busy and productive of using Notion that I don't have time to do a do a tutorial video about it. Um, but yeah, see, I, uh, it's a danger. I keep forgetting that you, I try out a lot of apps when they first come out, but I forget that they keep improving and evolving in the years since I took it around the block for its first quick quick spin. There are plenty of YouTube testimonials from people who make Notion look like it's, shall we say, highly aligned with my needs and interests. So I don't know, maybe. And I'm still trying to solve the problem of managing bookmarks. I've talked about this before. I've known for years that there has to be a better way when I'm tracking stories and research and things I want to reference pieces I want to get back to. There has to be a better way than just saving them into Chrome bookmark folders. And it's also the reason why I'm kind of stuck with Chrome because that's that's the that's my central database, my central synced across all devices truth. And I kind of don't like to be beholden to any one app. Uh, and also there should be something better out there, shouldn't there? Should I switch to Evernote, which have these have the extra advantage of being able to store the content itself on the web page as well as the link? Or maybe I should write some scripts to embiggen the powerosity and leverage the what's it. You know, I, I, I love uh, on the Mac platform particularly that if you don't like a feature, you can probably automate it. So maybe there's something I could do with bookmarks there. So I'm continuing to bookmark things in Chrome, but there is a script that's running that I can activate that uh, creates the bookmark in Chrome, but also puts it someplace else that's safe and independent and interesting. Uh, that also sounds like work. Th this is the big problem when you're trying to figure out new tools for getting a job done because you still have to get the job done. And I'm not trying to – I can't be devoting so much of my work time uh, – when, when, I'm, when I'm facing a deadline as I am with recording this podcast, you notice that, that I'm late today. Uh, I can't just say, oh, here's the time to start being really confused by something that I don't know if it works very well and might be much more difficult than what I've got before. No, I've got to finish this thing. So that's why you kind of stick into these, into these ruts that you have. But it's interesting. So when you add adding writing scripts to add features that you want, that makes it even worse. But overall, all this ties into something that I talked about last week. We need to always challenge the things that we do out of habit or routine. Habit and routine, they're not bad, but they have to keep being evaluated. Like I settled my into my existing workflow for writing an episode of material like 300 episodes ago. But are there better tools today? That's That was years ago. And have my needs and the show needs changed? Well, it's okay if you look at your options and you land back where you started. That's fine. That's not a waste of time. All you did is you revalidated re re your habits and your processes. That's great. Uh, but you know what? The Ulysses app has been promoted to a top-tier part of my writing kit overall just for this kind of reason, though. Like for years, I've done all of my major writing projects, like even my books, uh, and all my ongoing projects in an app called Scrivener, which you may have heard of. I started using it in like 2005 or something, and I still love it to pieces. But there's one thing that Scrivener doesn't do well at all, and that's syncing between devices. It's really sketchy. You have to use Dropbox, and uh, sometimes it doesn't sync properly, and you think that you might have lost everything, and that's a lot of stress, man. Um, so uh, I can use Scrivener on my Mac and my iPod, uh, iPad, and on Windows if I want to do, use it, use Windows, but Keeping a project file in sync between multiple devices still seems like a dangerous stunt. I should be like getting clicks for doing something this stupid. And in the, oh dear Lord, nearly 20 years since I began using Scrivener, syncing has gone from a convenience to a necessity. Like uh, 
working on multiple devices isn't just an opportunity. It isn't just a way to avoid carrying way too many things in my uh, onboard luggage when I travel for a week. It is now, even even in the course of a day, I keep switching between lots of devices. It's really, really, really important. Like, and, and yet I really resisted switching away from Scrivener because Scrivener, you know what, it, it, it's like my favorite desk chair. Okay. Where even if it wobbles, it's, you know, your, your butt fits into it exactly right. You're used to it. It kind of gets your brain into thinking, okay, I'm, I'm in this chair. My butt feels this way. It must be time to work. I'm going to clear away distractions, but yeah, sticking with something that doesn't work just because it's familiar and comfortable. That's not a reason to stick with it. Now, if any of that last thought made, made you think about your relationship with your partner, I'm sorry, and I'm not sorry. I'm, I hope that a, I hope that a good thing results from that if it happens. Well, I'm going to close off with another thought about routines and processes. Flow's leave is the first time I've had to sort of settle into a weekly routine of writing and recording material solo. It's different, and it's kind of difficult. Again, I'm late this week, and I apologize for that. And the, the reason for that is that. Uh, a lot of collisions happened like on the day I meant to be finishing writing this, uh, this episode and recording it. And when I have uh, something down to a lock and a routine, I can really carve out, I know exactly how to do this efficiently and quickly, and I can really plan ahead. And when something unexpected happens at the last minute, unless it's a real disaster, I can still ship on time. And, but when it's something that's still kind of new, it's like, oh man, it's finished when it's finished. I have a broad idea of what it's going to take and how long it's going to take to to shrink wrap and ship uh, a solo episode of material, but I'm still kind of learning. But nonetheless, when, when a solo is a one-off, you know, it's a change of pace and it's refreshing. You know, I'm enjoying the process. You know, Flo is traveling that week. So great. I'll do this differently today. That's wonderful. And I'm not really interested in efficiency when I was doing it, those one-offs. The disruption isn't a bug, it's a feature. But of course, now I'm doing one of these each and every week. So around this time in Flow Sabbatical, week number two, I'm starting to look for ways to streamline the operation and hopefully render it less vulnerable to disruption. And by, again, disruption, I mean finishing like a day later than I planned on a holiday weekend when editors and people, sorry, Jim, are waiting for my files. But, you know, even this part of it is kind of fun and kind of interesting. Like, ideally, I think that there'd be a butter zone between, like, the fireworks of being in an unexplored territory and, of course, the reliability of being on a well-worn direct path with signposts and distances and time estimations to when you're going to finally get the hell to where you wanted to go. I mean, it's – overall, it's exciting because it's a reminder of something – really, really important. I think that there's no such thing as a solved problem where a creative task is concerned. Like if I've done something so often that I can do in one hour, which what once took me four hours to do the big win there isn't necessarily finishing three hours sooner. It's having as many as three hours more to keep experimenting and keep trying new things and asking, okay, this is my instinctive way of doing it. Is there a more thoughtful way of doing it? Can I try something else? What if I don't get on the first bus? What if I wait to see what the second or third bus is like, you know? And this is why I'm both terrified and intrigued by chatbots like Bard and ChatGPT. Like, I'm not the least bit interested in having a chatbot do my work for me. But what if I develop a workflow in which I use the bot the same way that I used to use a calculator during math, during math class? Like if the chatbot generating some text for me frees up more time in my work week and more mental bandwidth to experiment and to innovate, that that's a win-win. 
Well, think about that in the upcoming break. Uh, we've got a good show for you nonetheless today. After spending two whole weeks uh, just talking about Google I.O., this week's show is about a lot of little things instead. Google held its annual event, the kind of their Google I.O. for ad buyers. Uh, the letters A and I do figure prominently in many of the announcements that they made. And there's going to be news about two Google partnerships, both old and new. This and much more right after the break. Okay, it's mid-May. You know what time it is. It's time for Google Marketing Live. Woo! Party! We're going to have a conference in which we talk about technology for buying and placing in creative ad, creating ads and targeting an audience with the campaign. Woo, woo. Okay, okay. I can't make this interesting. I'm going to try anyway. Uh, well, okay, yeah, talking about this basic topic of, <laughs> of buying and selling and creating ads, it makes my soul go just a little bit dry. Like I keep seeing phrases like I'm quoting here from a Google announcement. Creative is a critical ROI driver. So I, I keep seeing those phrases and I read that sentence and I think I can maybe comprehend that sentence, but I wear upon all that is good <laughs> wear upon. Sorry. I swear upon all that is good and holy that I will never ever approve of a sentence like that. It should not exist. Not in, not in earth's gravity and atmosphere. Okay. That's another thing for me to think of once I start ruling the place, but I'm going to dive into this topic anyway, because it really is kind of important. Google, uh, let's see, had a bunch of announcements. Uh, and a lot of that, of course, is, uh, involves AI. Uh, I mean, well, duh, like AI is now the high fructose corn syrup of technology. You, you, you got to get some in there somehow. Actually, well, if I can give you a moment, I, I'm hoping that AI uh, stops being the high fructose corn syrup and starts being like the MSG of tech, you know, where you don't know it's there. You just know that this thing tastes better and it's awesome. Also, if it would be like MSG, the the feeling would be like the jury's out whether AI is good for me or bad for me or, or whatever, but it won't be so bad, so gloriously and unapologetically bad that it seems rude. Like it's being, you know, cocky about it. I, I've, I've had my, I've turned around on MSG, by the way. I think it's, it's, it is, it is a quite the flavor enhancer. Anyway, so Google does seem to be training a chatbot to act as like a Google ads consultant, like a, an expert, uh, someone that you would hire to like manage your Google, your, your, your digital campaign. Uh, so the new version of this tool will generate headlines and descriptions and imagery for the ads that you try to create. Now, I don't understand much about the digital ad business. Of course, my working model of this system in my head is that uh, like imagine that uh, people responding to your ad campaign, that thing is like one of the old gods and you can awaken and activate that uh, one of those old gods. Uh, if you have a product or message and you want them to that old God to react positively to it, you can do it with the correct incantation. And even though you might look at like two different forms of a spell side by side and they look really, really similar to each other, uh, there's an arcane set of rules that underpins everything. And if you like omit one word or you change the wording, like instead of getting what you wanted, which is a hat that spills gold coins every time you turn it upside down over a bucket, what you get instead is a bowl of pasta and it's like overcooked and gummy and the sauce is like way, way, way too sweet. 
So the idea of these new AI-based ad tools is that you describe the ad that you want to create in simple human terms, and then this tool will turn it into AI-generated headlines and phrases that will please the hoary elderkind. And, uh, okay, well, I'll leave the analogy for now. Uh, what What I mean by all that is that I don't understand when they talk about optimization, that there is both uh, ways to write an ad just in general that will hook people in and get get you the attention and the results you want. There's also optimization for search engines, Google uh, optimizations for like the ad platform, on and on and on that, again, I could say that, hi, uh, I've got a deck chair. It's a nice deck chair. And... The price is quite reasonable, given the quality of the deck chair. If you're interested in my deck chair, email me or click this button. But there's like, you have to, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to have these three words in the the title of the article or the title of the ad. And then the first sentence should have this in it, like a call to action or a blah, blah, blah. And at this point, little birdies are flying all around my head and inside in one ear and out the other. So yeah, the idea of having a tool that is an expert in all this sort of stuff and can simply say, well, what do you want? You got, okay. So I'm hearing you got a deck chair, uh, it's in three colors and uh, you want people to know that it's easy to assemble and it's affordable, but it's high quality. Great. Here's, I'll give you a whole bunch of options that will, again, summon the elder, elder gods for you. So yeah, that's, that is definitely something that AI is set up to do, I hope. And there are also a whole bunch of new YouTube tools. AI promises to adapt your videos for square and vertical and horizontal orientations. I'm sorry, I'm going to drift again off of ads because I, again, I don't really understand this at all, but I do. Uh, when I saw that, uh, they, this part of the presentation was all about, Hey, yeah, you shoot your ad one way. And then artificial intelligence will optimize it. One will crop it automatically one way for Instagram and social media, another way for vertical video, another way for horizontal orientations. And it did make me kind of happy because it's nice to be observant and to be on this planet long enough to see how see society changing and changing positively to something. And this is a minor thing compared to the things that I would ways that I would like society to change, but just think about how the general attitude towards vertical video has shifted like in the last five or 10 years, like posting a video that was shot shooting a video vertically used to be like setting text in comic sans or like wearing the same style of sneakers that your dad wears. Like you would just get nothing but hassle for it. But now it's accepted as a format that takes advantage of how and where videos are often watched. Excellent. Free your mind. The rest will follow. Well, Google is also keen for people to know that it can also create narration for YouTube videos in natural language. And if that's a thing, wow, they have to do better than what the technology has seen, have done so far that I've seen. Like, can't you always tell when a voiceover is an AI voice? Because even if the voice is flawless and the voice can be flawless, like the cadence and the occasional mispronunciation of like a rare word will just tip it off. And as soon as like the, 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 as, as soon as the, the magic is like blown I feel like I'm wasting time on cheap content and I'm kind of like totally disconnected. Like I'm just reacting. Uh, now uh, this next one, I, I just cut and pasted into the show notes. I have to read it verbatim and hope that some of you can make sense of it. 
For advertisers looking to optimize for site traffic and, con and conversions, video action campaigns can help you drive actions and conversions across these formats. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. When an AI suddenly says conversions instead of conversions, that's when you know I'm not an AI. See, I'm here. I've got I've, I've got like my, the the case for my 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 earbuds here. See, would I be mashing this against my head and? Doing that if I were, okay, moving on. Video action campaigns can help you drive actions and conversions across these formats. For advertisers looking to drive awareness, video reach campaigns use Google AI to serve the best combination of ads. Earlier this, this, this month, we announced that we're adding in-feed video ads and expanding shorts into video reach campaigns for efficient reach to bring more opportunities to connect with your audience. I don't even know like how what the cadence should be, because I'm not processing this. It's like, oh my God, I'm like, oh. oh, there is a version of me in some universe that is in the ad business and he's probably miserable. Like he, he's, he's comfortable because he's in a much bigger house and he's got cars and he's wearing better shoes, more comfortable shoes, probably tailor-made stuff. But in terms of soul wise, oh my God, he's, he's, he's a heavy drinker. Uh, so yeah, I, I hope that you could figure what that meant because I can't just good luck with that report back if you've got any thoughts. So, I mean, this, this stuff, I, I just, I just don't get it, but nonetheless with artificial intelligence, I think we really need to keep close tabs on even these topics, like how ads are built and distributed that we're not interested in because like, especially with advertising, because advertising is effective when it's insidious, like over the years, like starting with, starting with like watching T watching broadcast TV as a kid, like we, I've developed these increasingly complex and sophisticated filters that identify and reject anything that looks like an ad. Okay. My, my attention is valuable elsewhere. So Google ads pitch to its customers, which are advertisers is going to be that they are, they can sneak an ad past my goalie, you know, score. We all know about A-B testing, of course. That's when a big commercial website posts a story. Uh, the authors and the editors, they don't just write one headline for it. They like compose like five or six or seven headlines. And then uh, the the software and the server that serves up that web page to the people who visit the site will pick one of these five or six uh, headlines at random. And then over the first like 20 minutes to an hour or whatever – it turns out that uh, one of these headlines is getting clicked on more than uh, versions of the, the same article that appear under under un, under the other headlines, and so suddenly, great, this is the right. This, so this is the one that's getting people's attention and getting people to act. So this is now going to be the uh, the headline that we use for all uh, all versions of this uh, article that we serve to all of our users. So yeah, it's just it's just natural. So generative AI allows a new curveball for this procedure. Like if a, if a product photo includes cues that this thing is for, that's being advertised at me is for boomers or for Gen Z, I might ignore it because it's not my group. And it can be just really subtle things, you know, but an ad campaign might be able to pay an advertiser like Google to have a custom product image AI generated for just me for just the kind of person who's viewing the ad. We go far beyond uh, the simple concept of, hey, swingers in name of town are looking for people like your age group. Click here to find out. It, it, it can get really insidious. Like if I like there, you see all these ads for like various ways to avoid having to actually have actual meals, like put some mix, mix up this powder, drink that. 
it's it's probably green or orange. It'll taste awful, but you'll be done with dinner. You'll you'll have delivered a dosage of dinner really quickly. Okay, so if that if the ad that gets targeted to me, like when I when I open up a web page, it serves the ad, it figures out, oh, here's Andy's demographic. So I'm going to build a special version of this ad just for this user. So if it's if that green sludge is in like a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Tumblr, and the room that it's in in the photo is decorated in sort of like sort of an apathetic sort of motif. I will probably think, oh, this is a this is a this is a a sludge drink that's tailored for me, my generation, my kind of people, and I'll get tricked into paying attention to it, and then I'll think, oh, Andy, you loser, you got you fell for the trick. Well, that's technology that's going to be coming out to people who are buying ads and creating ads with YouTube services later on this year. Uh, of more immediate concern to more people are wow changes to YouTube ads. Uh, YouTube's making a couple of moves that everybody is absolutely loving. The people who have seen this have thought, God bless you, YouTube. God bless you, Alphabet. You have improved the ad experience that I'm having on YouTube. No, of course, they're they're being real, real pantsy about it. I'll give you a hint. The word unstoppable figures prominently in the description of how these ads <laughs> technologies are being changed. Hooray! Okay, well, first... High-performing videos that are being watched on smart TVs are going to start with an unskippable 30-second-long ad from now on. Uh, they're, they're testing it, but it's appearing in a lot of people's uh, experiences. Uh, next, YouTube is going to start experimenting with this new really malignant streaming TV thing that keeps popping up elsewhere called pause ads. That's where like that really annoy, real annoyance where every time you pause a video, rather than just showing you a static freeze frame, it will show you that freeze frame plus an ad. So that of course, you know, ugh, I really, really hate it. Like it feels like the streaming service when that happens is just nickel and diming me for my attention. Even when it's Netflix and it's showing me like a promo, a, a still promo for another Netflix show. It's like, I didn't want to, don't, don't turn this pause into a screensaver of trying to get me to keep watching Netflix. It's like, again, I feel nickel and dime. Like there's no part of my attention span that it will not try to hijack and take and, and, and exploit. Yikes. I just don't, I just don't like paying for that experience. I mean, like also oftentimes when I'm pausing like Bob's burgers, uh, the Simpsons, I'm trying to read a joke. That's probably deep in the background that was intended to be only seen by freeze framing. So if I'm now, if I'm now seeing like a, 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 an ad for a kind of like disposable edible shoe instead of like the, in the, the Bob's burger joke, I'll be upset. Uh, finally, uh, it looks like YouTube is really looking into the possibility of trying to kill off all ad blockers for, uh, that, uh, affect the YouTube service. A lot of users who are watching YouTube or with an ad blocker installed, have been seeing a pop-up instead of the video that they were trying to watch. And a curt little notice saying ad blockers are not allowed on YouTube and a little scoldogram saying, did you know that advertising is, is what helps make this system free for everybody? It's, it's just like stealing Sporto. I, I made up the stealing and Sporto part, but you know, there's the condescending part of it. Uh, IGN talked about this. They reached out to YouTube for comment. YouTube described this fortunately as quote, a small experiment, unquote. So they're just looking into it. It has, it's not, they do a lot of AB testing. So, okay, maybe this is not going to be a real thing. Um, but overall, this is why I pay for YouTube premium. Like 
all across the board, if there's a way for me to remove every possibility of seeing an ad, I will do it. And I'm so obsessive about this point that I will actually spend money to make that happen. And if you're not impressed with that statement, I remind you, I am a freelance journalist in a rapidly collapsing market that is now being attacked by generative AI as well as being beset by its usual demons. So if I'm, if I'm willing to spend 10 bucks a month not to see ads, that, that, is, that is almost an act of violence. Well, there is some more to talk about YouTube uh, this week, but uh, I'm going to talk about this other topic on our bonus episode this week. That's just for people who are our Relay.fm members and our subscribers. Uh, If you'd like to become a member of Relay.fm and help support our podcast and all the shows on Relay.fm, please, please, please go to Relay.fm slash material. And trust me, we can help you make your dreams come true. We're going to take another break and be back with, again, partnerships, old and new. Isn't that lovely? You might recall that uh, the New York Times ran a story last month that we talked about. Uh, The story claimed, based on messages that the Times had seen between people inside Google, like internal messaging, that the company was in, quote, panic, unquote, mode. And the story quoted that word directly from its internal messages uh, over information that Samsung was considering, actually considering dropping Google as the default search engine on their phones and switching to, you guessed it, Bing. Amazing. Well, at the time, I didn't take the story really seriously. It's no longer a secret that Google pays Apple and Samsung billions of dollars apiece to be the default search engine and other resources on those devices. And those contracts come up for renewal periodically. Of course, Samsung would be a fool not to exploit this new, (laughs) I would say heightened competition, this new (laughs) non-precedental. There's no precedent. There was never competition between Google search and Bing. And so if they don't exploit this to try to negotiate more money out of Google to renew this contract, uh, they're fools. And while it is true that Samsung did ship millions of phones with styluses that could get permanently jammed inside the device if the user slid them into the phone silo the wrong way around, well, they're not actual fools. That was just a mistake. That was just carelessness. So yeah, they're they're not going to do something quite that stupid. Uh, as to turn down free money. Well, uh, we have an update. The Wall Street Journal now tells us that the other shoe has finally dropped on that little dance. And Samsung, who guessed it, is going to stick with the one that brought him, i.e. Google. Apparently, Google had indeed put together a team to explore the idea of switching to Bing. But in the end, the team decided it really, really wasn't worth it. And by the way, it, it, they weren't talking about just dropping Google entirely off the phone or dropping search entirely off the phone. It would have been limited to just Samsung's pre-installed internet app, uh, which few people actually use anyway. So eh, switching the default search engine from an app that people people don't know exists because they're doing their searching through Chrome, eh, wasn't, wasn't worth all the stress, was it? But at least this, this new uh, information explains why Samsung was even considering a switch at all. Um, it's, it seemed weird a, because people still don't want Bing. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, also, uh, Google locks device manufacturers into agreements that ties access to the play store, uh, to pre-installing a boatload of other Google apps and services. So you can't just simply say we want the play store, but we want to have our own maps app. We want to have our own search engine. We want to be able to 
put out to bid who gets uh, who gets what service whatever it's like no you either take everything or you take nothing and uh, as you know uh, the really uh, the play store in and of itself that's the difference between a phone that feels like real android and something that feels like you know a deep fake or something so it makes sense uh, in context that samsung could have switched to bing on just that one in-house app without violating that agreement assuming that that's in place uh, which i I assume it is. Also, the Google Samsung partnership, it continues to be well weird, you know, odd. Like Samsung has so much of the Android phone hardware market share that it's kind of the default worldwide maker of Android phones. But without Google's apps and services and their app store, like how appealing are these phones? Meanwhile, Google's Pixel line like you look at it and you, you get the impression that Google isn't really in love with Samsung and they're only in this relationship with Samsung for the market share. <laughs> like Samsung's phones and watches and tablets, they're dull and frumpy, but Google has this sexy pixel phone that, and a watch and a tablet that's got on the side that makes Google feel like an exciting industry innovator again. Okay. Well, anyway, and, and somehow in this relationship, Google and Samsung, they've got to continue to support each other without antagonizing each other. I mean, they hardly ever appear in each other's product launches anymore. Like, is that the same as not taking vacations together? Okay. Well, either way we're moving on. So, uh, we got some real movement on Waymo's self-driving taxi fleet. Uh, The only news that we've found we've been getting over the past year or so too, is that Google is now, Waymo is certainly now at the point where they've got self-driving cars, not finished, not on lock, but at least it's reliable enough that in an area, in a limited area where the driving system knows that area really intimately, like here is a locked off zone in Phoenix, Arizona. Here is a locked off zone in San Francisco. Here's a new locked off zone that they're trying to learn about in Austin, Texas. It can, it can do self-driving, pick up passengers, uh, pick up paying passengers and, you know, not having to have a supervisor in the front seat to <laughs> scream and grab the wheels in desperation when it's about to head you know, off of a pier or something. But uh, where, where is this going? Well, here's where it might be going. Uh, Waymo and Uber announced, had a joint announcement that uh, they're going to be, you will be able to uh, hail a Waymo uh, in Phoenix sometime soon, sometimes later this year. Uh, so Waymo announced a multi-year partnership with Uber. So later this this year, again, starting kind of where Waymo started in the real world, Phoenix, Arizona, this 180 square mile uh, proving grounds, this one, 180 square mile uh, <laughs> battle zone, whatever. Okay, I shouldn't call it a battle zone. No, no one's died. No one's gotten hurt. No one's gotten killed. But anyway, uh, in this 180 square mile zone inside Phoenix, the Uber app can be used to hail a ride in a Waymo. So the joint announcement also says that Waymo's are going to also make deliveries using Uber Eats. Okay. I mean, I'm, I've always been a little bit confused about how that's going to work. Like, first of all, how does the food get inside the car after you order it? Like restaurants, they all, a lot of them, they already kind of hate food delivery apps. So are these restaurants going to be okay with having their own staff, like, run orders out to delivery cars like in a night when they're absolutely slammed. Uh, I mean, it's going to, it's going to work. I'm sure 
if they have like partnerships, particularly with the these things you've heard of called ghost kitchens, where it's just an industrial park with a with a kitchen outfitted to it that again steals orders away from actual like mom and pop restaurants. That so you think you're ordering from Ah uh, Mama Varelli's uh, old fashioned Italian pizza, and what you're getting is like Cisco frozen pizzas from the same company that runs, I don't know. The factory, the other side of the factory makes batteries <laughs> and, and sells them only in markets where like there's no such thing as an environmental protection agency, but they also make pizzas, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, uh, I don't get it also. And here, here's another piece of confusion for me. So the car arrives with a pizza or the, or, or the, or the low main or whatever. And what happens? So the customer has to put on pants and shoes and leave their apartment, go find the car, wherever it's found a place to idle and then rummage through the car to find their specific order. Like, are they really going to be dispatching inefficiently? Are they really going to uh, say this Waymo will go to this one restaurant, pick up an order and then go directly to the place where this order is going? Or are they going to like pick up eight orders Okay. And make a round and do this thing kind of hopefully faster and more efficiently. Like, so yeah, if that happens, then the customer is going to have to figure out <laughs> the, the customer, you get the way going to have to, and Uber, Uber is going to have to trust the customer not to upgrade their order. Like, Ooh, lobster bisque. That's much better than my big Mac. Ooh, I accidentally grabbed the wrong bag. Yeah. Uh, and I, I also, I assume that like the Uber app, will unlock the door. Like the doors are locked. It arrives parked. The doors are locked. You have to use the app and you have to be like expecting a delivery to be able to unlock the door with the app. Cause otherwise like these delivery cars, they're going to get sacked and plundered, you know, <laughs> and, or, and, or like you'll open the door to get your pad tie and find someone sleeping in the back seat or, <laughs> you know, I need to get across town. I bet this car is eventually going to deliver, <laughs> deliver like near, near the Coliseum or wherever it is that I'm going for a basketball game or something. Okay. But I, I shouldn't poo poo it. Like progress is progress. It's obviously a good match between uh, Waymo and Uber. You'll remember that Uber sold off its self-driving car development a few years ago for a few billion dollars, uh, but they're in a key business where they can make a lot of money by replacing humans with machines that don't demand, you know, to be treated like actual human beings. But yeah, I'm still navigating the whole concept of self-driving cars, not the technology, but what's the role of them? Like, what is, is, is this an example of a technology that's being developed because there's a lot of investment in it and a lot of faith that. I don't see the demand for it, but we've done the math and there seems to there it logically there's must be a demand for this technology, you know, something like virtual reality. It's like, okay, I'm glad that you're doing this research. I'm glad you're excited about it. I'm not sure that when you, if, and when you finish this product, you'll have something that people are going to care about. Like it's a fine self-driving technology. It's a fine research project, but to me, the meat of self-driving technology is in assistive driving, like uh, level three or level, no, level three driving, not full autonomy, not full level five. Like I get in a car, I'm just driving like normal. And then I need to get onto I-95. And so I can push a button to get me onto I-95 via the, the upcoming exit. And then the, the car keeps me in my lane, keeps me safe from chaos until it's time to take my exit near a destination. Then it gets me off the exit back onto, you know, Tallulah street or whatever. And then I take over and get myself to my destination. That's great. Uh, I don't know. Uh, apart from trucking, 
that's obvious. And assistive technology, people who uh, f- uh, can't see well or can't operate a car well uh, cognitively or because of physical limitations, uh, that's that's a, a big boon, being able to drive yourself. Uh, I mean, apart from those, those couple of conditions, full self-driving seems like the investment to get the investment being made to get to work is not going to be nearly as big as the payoff if it succeeds. And that's still a really, really big if. Well, that certainly feels like a full show to me, and I hope you agree with me. Either way, that's the end of the show. Flo is going to be back in a few weeks. In the meantime, you can check out what she's up to on her Instagram, where she's oh that flow. She's not writing because, again, she is taking a sabbatical, but she might be occasionally posting some of the fun she's having with her kids. A kid, unless her husband sometimes goes into kid mode, which I respect in a relationship. As for me, I'm Anatko, I-H-N-A-T-K-O, on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can go to, uh, I just did uh, this morning, uh, Boston Public Radio, Radio, Boston's NPR station. So if you can go to, you can go to uh, WGBHnews.org uh, to stream uh, my conversation l- uh, later on at your convenience. Or you can go to WG, the, D, the WGBH News channel on YouTube because we were at uh, the Boston Public Library's like really, really glorious sunny day studio. And so when on Tuesdays and Fridays, they stream live from that location. Uh, I was supposed to be there. I couldn't be there. So I had to be on Zoom. Again, so many things went pear-shaped. And again, it's not just it's not just things going wrong. It's like things going wrong stacked up in the same like 11-hour period where a lot of things had to go very right. So I didn't I couldn't take the time to like get into Boston and be there, even though I would have loved to have been there. Oh well. But it was a great show. So definitely check that out. And once again, as always, you can help support our show flow and myself and everything on the relay.fm network by becoming a member so head on over to relay.fm slash material to sign up and gain access to special members only episodes produced by all of relays contributors including us so thanks so much for listening this time i hope you're going to be listening to me again next week until then everybody have please a happy self and happy safe and healthy seven days bye-bye